Radiolab is supported by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Before we start, this podcast contains a fair amount of strong language. Uh, wait, you're listening. Okay. <laughs> All right. Right. <coughs> You're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yep. I pledge to never be passive, patriotic, or grateful in the face of American abuse. I pledge to always thoughtfully bite the self righteous American hand that thinks it's feeding us. I pledge that white Mississippians and white Americans will never dictate who I choose to be or what symbols I choose to imbue with meaning. I pledge to not allow American ideals of patriotism and masculinity to make me hard, abusive, generic, and brittle. I pledge to messily love our people and myself better than I did yesterday. I pledge to be the kind of free that makes justly winning and gently losing possible to never ever confuse cowardice with courage. I pledge allegiance to the Mississippi freedom fighters who made all my pledges possible. I pledge allegiance to the baby Mississippi liberation fighters coming next. This is my pledge of allegiance to my United States of America and to my Mississippi. Ready or not, this is a pledge to my home. Are y'all standing up? Resolution passes. History will be made here today. Okay, Mississippi. A savage, uncivilized state. A state of extremes. Murder and racial hatred. In Jackson, Mississippi. The state where Emmett Till was brutally murdered. Medgar Evers was assassinated and shot in the back by a single round from a high-powered rifle. The state with the highest number of lynchings in the Union, but also a staggeringly high number of Nobel, Pulitzer Prize, and National Book Award winners. The most charitable state in the Union. Mississippi is also the state with the highest percentage of black people in America. And for the last 126 years, Mississippi has had a Confederate battle flag on their state flag, sort of upper left-hand corner. Red, white, and blue stripes, Confederate battle flag, upper left. Other states like South Carolina and Georgia would fly the Confederate flag on their state capitals, but one by one, they took them off. Mississippi was the last holdout. Until last week. You might have heard about this on the news. I want to tell you the story behind this deflagging. 
It's an amazing story, something we've been following for months because Leave our flag alone. it's way more than just another story about taking down a thing. Just because we've had it for years doesn't mean we need to keep it. This is a journey that involves a clash of histories. Honor, outright hate, freedom, designs, just hate, and courage, just hate. Generations. There will be retribution. And philosophies about how to make change. This is a story that I've been working on with my Dolly Parton's America colleague, Shima Oliai. She'll start us off. Okay, so, story starts. In a sea of red. It was just as far as the eye could see. Confederate flags. And the stands, instead of pom-poms, you see the flag waving like it was a pom-pom. And then if they didn't have a flag, they would take their shirts off and paint it on their bodies. It was like a sea of Confederate flags. But um, we just kind of saw it as, that's their symbol. Can you just say your full name and... Okay, so uh, Clara Justice, and I'm the Vice President of Business Complete Solutions in San Diego. The place that Clara's talking about is the University of Mississippi, or Ole Miss. This is a place where, during football games, they would roll out a Confederate flag that was as big as the football stand. It was massive. The second biggest Confederate flag in the country. That's Ashton Pittman. Senior reporter at the Mississippi Free Press. What's the biggest? I do not know what what the first is, but it was... If you walked around, cheerleaders carried Confederate flags, but it was everywhere. But then, the first domino falls. Would it be better for me to use my microphone as well? Maybe. Well, you're using your cell phone, right? I'm going to record it with my mic, but I can, um, you tell me. The movement to de-Dixie, the Mississippi state flag, it is a long, convoluted, confusing, many-headed history. But you could argue that it really goes back to one guy, John Hawkins, Ole Miss class of 1984. I had a lot of different hats when I was at Ole Miss. Uh, Aside from being a, a student... I was busy when I arrived on campus With his first field goal, trying to figure out how to get on the basketball team. Because I had been a pretty good high school player, a great scorer, and, and of course, you know, as fate would have it, I got, got injured, wasn't uh, as good a basketball player as I thought I was, and went off to do some other things. John got involved with student government. Yeah, became president of the black student body. He was on all kinds of committees, was in a black fraternity. <laughs> he was basically a man about campus. Now, just for context. We only had about 500 black students in the whole campus of, what, 13,000? So what's that percentage-wise, 2%, maybe 3%? Closer to 8 but still. So it's a really small number, so they never been... And you got to keep in mind that this was only 20 years after a man by the name of James Meredith... James H. Meredith. ...became the first black student to enter the University of Mississippi. And... The town becomes an armed battlefield. President Kennedy had to send the National Guard... Armed with tear gas and sidearms. Over that. Two men are killed. Score 150 are arrested after a night of terror. Thousands of federal troops, days of riots... It was rough. In any case. One day, John's sophomore year, he's sitting at a black student committee meeting and they're discussing the cheerleading squad. 
there had never been a black cheerleader at Ole Miss in its 134 years of existence. And my good friend Clara Bibbs. There we go. Who had always wanted to be an Ole Miss cheerleader. Uh, she, so I was like going to be trying out. Her partner, who was helping her try out, was a white male, which was in and of itself kind of unheard of at that time at Ole Miss, but it just spoke to the fact that things were starting to change on campus. Yes. Problem was, the white guy gets injured, and now Claire had no partner. She was in, in the lurch about two weeks or so before tryouts, and we were having this committee meeting trying to determine, okay, so what can we do? You know, Claire's our best hope to ever achieve this. We, we just didn't have a solution. And, and someone <laughs> asked me if, if I would consider doing it because, I, I mean, I was athletic enough. He was, he's very tall and he's very strong. I'm like five, one and a half. John has to be 6'2", maybe 6'3". I mean, I'd never been doing anything about cheerleading. I knew that, you know, Claire weighed about 110, 115 pounds and, you know, in the weight room back in those days, I could throw 115 pounds around all day. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I, I ended up um, saying, "Yeah, sure, I'll help her." All right. So for two weeks, John and Claire met up, practiced. One of the fun aspects of learning to be a cheerleader for the first time is learning how to do partner stunts. He crammed to learn all the moves, like what they call a chair extension. Where she stands in front of him, he puts his hands by your waist. She gives a little jump. She hops up. The guy takes his right hand and puts it under your butt. And she's sort of lifted up into the air to sit on his hand that's held high above his head. He holds your other left leg with his hand. High on the thigh, above the knee, never on the knee. It was a lot of lifting of me, a lot of picking me up. You know, pick up the girl, throw the girl as high as you can, catch the girl, don't let her get hurt. Keep in mind, back in these days, Old Miss was like the national cheerleading champion. Very competitive. So being a, an Ole Miss cheerleader was a big deal. Anyhow, John got up to speed and the two of them try out for judges along with hundreds of other mostly white students. And then... There was just kind of faith that, that threw us a curveball. Um, because, you know, the process at Ole Miss was a little bit stacked. Right, right, right. So the way the cheerleading squad at Ole Miss worked is that... There was a qualifying process. You had to try out. You'd have this huge tryout where you, it would get narrowed down to... The top 10. The top 10 males and the top 10 females. Well, as, as fate would have it, we both make the top 10. We both make the cut. Oh, wow. Wow, that must have been a pretty big deal. Yeah. And that in and of itself was phenomenal. The complication was... How the process worked is that after that first cut... Then it went to a vote. A popular vote. So once you've gone through the gauntlet and, and demonstrated that you had the ability, it then became a popularity contest on campus where you then had to go out and campaign and you get your groups of friends, fraternities, sororities, whatever, to vote you in. So the votes were paper, just by word of mouth. Of course, you know who I was campaigning for. Right. <laughs> I was, I was I was campaigning for Claire and trying to see if we could uh, get her on that squad. But John was a very visible guy. Whereas I was the opposite. You know, I was a journalist, wasn't in any sororities. Make a long story short. I ended up getting elected. But I didn't. Oh, that's complicated. Yeah, it was it was it was a real it was a real complicated issue. What was the uh, because, conversations with, with Claire right, well, right course, after it, that? It was devastating because I didn't want to do it. I mean, I was only there for her. I was at a friend's house and someone called me. I was like, okay, I didn't make it. Not a big deal. 
I think everybody was just in shock. Like, <laughs> wait a minute. This wasn't how it was supposed to go. <laughs> they were like, it wasn't supposed to go down like this. How did this happen? I think is kind of how everybody looked at it. And they were, they kind of looked at me like, oh my God, we're so sorry. I'm like, don't be sorry. You have to understand coming out of Jim Crow, I wasn't used to things going my way anyway. So Claire told us she grew up in a rural town in central Mississippi that even as late as 1976, 1976, had separate entrances for black and white citizens. And you guys, and just to be clear, you guys never talked it out at that time? No, we didn't. Because, I, I mean, even before she and I could have that conversation about what does it mean and so forth, the evening of the election. April 22nd, 1982. It was such a momentous occasion. John says initially the vibe was positive. It was a great spirit on campus. Both, you know, black and white kids really were celebrating that achievement in and of itself. Reporters, though, chased him around campus, finally cornered him in the student union, and then began to bombard him uh, with some difficult questions. After that, I'm thinking, holy cow, you know, what did, what did I get him into? One reporter asked, would he be comfortable with a white female partner as the ghost of Emmett Till entered the room? Apparently, John answers, this is a new age and the time has passed for prejudice. And, um, of course, that's when the infamous question comes up and someone asks me about the uh, Confederate flag and if I was going to follow old Miss tradition and wave the rebel flag. That's how every game started, with male cheerleaders running out and waving a giant battle flag. Was, I, mean, I never expected to have to ask that question. John said he literally had never contemplated it because he never thought he'd be a cheerleader to begin with. In that moment, between when he was asked the question and when he answered, a few things went through his mind. He thought about his grandmother. She died when she was 102 years old. Wow. So imagine this for a moment. This is my grandmother, not my great-great-grandmother. This is my grandmother whose mother was born a slave. He thought about the fact that when he got chosen for the cheerleading squad, he suddenly started seeing a whole lot more of those rebel flags being carried around campus, almost as if they came out in reaction to his presence. He thought about how the tuition he paid helped buy those flags <laughs> that we had no interest in. And so when the question came up about the flag, he says he just looked at the reporter square in the eyes and said, no, so Of course not. The answer was no. And that just came out? That wasn't premeditated? No, it was instinctive. I hadn't, hadn't even thought about it. For a Black person like John to carry the Confederate flag is like a Jewish person carrying a swastika. From the moment he said no, the story exploded. With the equivalent of viral. Keep in mind, this is before social media. The Confederate flag is at the heart of an emotional racial dispute at the University of Mississippi. We talk about agitation <laughs> in the context of George Floyd. No, I know, I can tell you what agitation looks like. The flag of the Confederacy has always been the cause of not-so-subtle agitation, but those feelings had been unspoken until the university's first black cheerleader refused to carry the flag. People were leading hostile protests on the campus. John received death threats. The Ku Klux Klan held an off-campus march in protest. Someone Another set his dorm room on fire. Probably was the most hated person in the South. 
you know. <laughs> this is Curtis Petey Scott. He was in John's fraternity at the time. John and I were best friends, and they were two doors down. He told me the story about just how bad things got. There was one night, he says, when they were all at the fraternity house. And the police came in and said, we want y'all to turn off the light, get down on the floor. And we were like, what is going on? All of a sudden, we could hear the chants coming from afar. And it was getting louder and louder. So, you know, we looked out there and we saw the mob marching down Jackson Street. 1,000 white students held a noisy rally in support of the flag earlier this week. Flag-waving white students marched on a black fraternity house. I will never forget the chant. We want Hawkins. We want Hawkins. It was almost as though they wanted to break in the house or either want us to get John and throw him to the mob. Curtis says black students from around the campus started running to the fraternity house to defend them, but the police stopped them. Thank God that didn't happen. I thought that would have been a horrible scene. I mean, it would have been totally horrible. You know, state police was called out at one point. State troopers, city police. Which reminded a lot of people of 1962. Mobs came out, stopped traffic. Black students held a counter-demonstration, demanding that the university find another symbol. That really carried through into the full year. When I was a, uh, on, the, on the squad, your game days were, <laughs> were quite interesting. John says before games, they'd take him from a safe house, sneak him into the stadium, where he'd then lead cheers for people who booed him. Wow, it must have been really lonely standing on that field. <laughs> well, not only on that field, but on every field, every time we showed up for a football game. After 12 football games of this, 20-something basketball games, continued protests, counter-protests, the chancellor of the school. I think his name was Porter. A man named Porter Fortune issued a statement. If there is a feeling that racism exists on our campus, I want to be the first to attempt to get rid of it. The mob, they marched on his mansion. (laughs) So, you know, so he probably was like, what I need to do? I feel like my life is in jeopardy now. And as a result, the flag has been dropped as the school's symbol. Can you read that article from uh, April 23rd, 1983? You know I'm an old man now, so if I can get my glasses if I need them. Uh, but the Chancellor of the University of Mississippi trying to defuse a, race, a racial dispute said yesterday the Confederate flag will no longer be used as a school symbol. Um, this was the lightning rod event. The NAACP for years had been thinking about starting a campaign against the display of the Confederate flag. They wanted to take this down. But they thought there was no way it could ever happen in Mississippi. It took this one guy to say, no, I'm not going to wave the flag. For everyone to just ponder the idea that it could be possible. Uh, when I've subsequently talked to Claire, you know, I think she's, she's even said it that, you know, maybe God chose you for that moment more so than me because uh, he knew that you can handle it. I think in hindsight, that was, that was meant to be. It was meant to be that way. He, he stood his ground, he didn't carry it. He didn't let them push him off the squad. I don't know that I would have had that strength. So I'm glad it was John. You know, sometimes the universe lines up in such a way that it's a time for change. It's so weird to be talking to you right at this minute, because right now, literally as we are doing this interview, (laughs) the Mississippi state legislature is meeting 
and they may be about to take down the flag. I just got a text from a senator saying, in 10 minutes, like literally, like in five minutes, the flag could go down. Well, hopefully they'll do the right thing. <clears throat> yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's long overdue. So in 1983, the University of Ole Miss decides no more Confederate flags can be flown at Ole Miss. This was the first domino, but it was only a baby domino. White students applauded the chancellor's decision to permit individuals to carry the flag. He was trying to thread the needle, right? As long as I can bring it to the game, I don't care. And the even trickier part was, since the Confederate flag was actually embedded in the Mississippi state flag, and had been since 1894, and since Old Miss was a state institution, the Confederate battle flag was still there by default in front of the school administration buildings flapping in the breeze and would remain that way for another 32 years. Until... It is heartbreaking videotape taken just before the church massacre that shocked the world. 2015 and deranged... Racist walks into a historic black church in South Carolina, kills nine people, and is later found in an old photograph to be holding the Confederate battle flag. Last night, the University of Mississippi Student Government Association voted to remove the flag bearing the Confederate battle emblem. The school then finally decides they cannot fly the state flag. The recent racially motivated church shootings in South Carolina giving momentum to those who want it taken down. So at this point, the flagpoles are empty. And not just at Ole Miss, all across the state, you begin to see businesses removing the Mississippi state flag. Question was, what to put in its place? And that's when you start to see another flag being hoisted. And this brings us to chapter two. Oh, to Lauren. Here we go. Give me a hug. Oh, we can't do that. (laughs) We zoomed with Lauren Stennis for the first time back in April. Oh, hell. Stop. Roomba just came on. (laughs) Oh, really? Oh, I just met my first Roomba just a couple days ago. They're so loud. Damn you, Roomba. It was early pandemic. Lauren was quarantined in her home slash art studio in Jackson, Mississippi, with her cat and dog and Roomba. Her journey to the center of the Mississippi flag fight takes a very different trajectory than John's. Yes, ma'am. Around the same time that he was stepping foot on Old Miss campus for the first time, she was talking to birds. Well, my mother fed birds when I was growing up. And, you know, these goldfinches that are just stunning when they're in their summer plumage. I just was entranced as a kid. And, and <laughs> to the point that I started thinking birds were talking to me. <laughs> Um, But there's a pill for that, yeah, so. (laughs) Lauren says her childhood was pretty idyllic. I would lay down in the middle of clover and watch clouds. I would get little locust shells off the trees. Um, You know, played in the creeks and looked at tadpoles. And when you were that young, like seven or eight, did you have any concept of that that your grandfather was who he was? Um, Not exactly. I really had no sense of kind of who my grandfather was in the larger sense. 
Lauren's grandfather, by the way, speaking with United States Senator John C. Stennis of Mississippi, is John Stennis, uh, or was John Stennis. He died in 1995. Southern Democrat who served in the Senate for over 41 years and for much of that time. We've gone to extreme on the civil rights. We've just let it run away. He was a staunch segregationist. No doubt. I think I became conscious of that probably in high school, really. I'm curious what that was like to, to learn that, because if you read his early letters... Colored people uh, on the employment list. He talks really openly about how he believes uh, black people are inferior. And we've let them do largely as they wanted to do and didn't punish them. The fact that he opposed the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act. And it must be stopped if we have personal liberty and freedom left for anyone. Even a holiday for Martin Luther King. And I'm certain in my belief. How do you process that, given that, given what you believe, and also the fact that he is your grandfather? I mean, you know, hearing and reading various things, you know, I get a little nauseated, to be honest. Um, it's because, twofold. One, because... That's just such a um, revolting belief. But that I'm related, you know, that he was a white guy born in 1901, less than 40 years after the Civil War, in a rural, unincorporated town. You know, I mean, it's like, am I shocked? No. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm able to see him in his context. I would love it. If he had been this amazing, you know, guy who was able to transcend everything he was taught and, um, you know, came out as this early progressive leader. It was wrong. It's indefensible. But am I shocked? Not particularly. Lauren's political awakening and subsequent interest in flags was slow to take by her own admission. After high school, she went to Tulane. I left Tulane with a 1.7 GPA because I just quit going to class. I think at that point, I was just kind of raging against the machine and I didn't even fully understand what the machine was and that really I was part of it. She says she started to see and understand that machine when she transferred from Tulane to Millsaps back in Mississippi and then fell into a rabbit hole of ethics classes and women's studies courses and soon began to write cutting essays about politics for an alt-progressive newspaper. We were just, we were initially just shocked that someone who came from what appeared to us to be like such voracious, racist Mm. beginnings could give her, at that point, 21, 22-year-old life to causes that would probably make her grandfather like squeal. This is author Kiese Lehman again, who started us off with that alternative pledge. He and Lauren worked on that paper together at Millsaps, and they politically organized together. You know, growing up, we were always kind of taught that there was a group of people called good white folks, and those were, you know, and, and, and you question the motives of good white folk, but, you know, once somebody, like, bleeds over into that category, like, you, you know, we knew early on that Lauren was good white folk. Okay, so let's jump forward to your flag. Uh, when did you begin that journey? It started when I moved back. This is after she had gone to school, moved away, become a social worker and an artist, and then returned. Bought a little house, and just instinctively, one of the, you know, I was like, I'm home, and I was excited, and I was proud, and I liked my little house, and I wanted to put out a flag. Hmm. You know, I'm back in Mississippi, and, and I would never, never have our current state flag. And I just, 
I just kind of sat down and just thought, this is ridiculous. This is absurd that Mississippians didn't have a flag that anyone could fly without a moment's hesitation. So after reflecting on that, I began to do some research. So I ended up down at archives. She said she just wanted to know if there were other options out there besides the 1894 Mississippi state flag with the Confederate battle flag on it. And she says the first thing that she encountered was that there was a flag before that flag. The Magnolia flag, as it was called. This was the flag that people said was the first state flag of Mississippi. It was created in 1861. What you see is a white background and cartoonish green tree in the middle. It's like, it's so ugly, it's cute. Because, I mean, the Magnolia tree is a blob. Yeah, it just looked like a... It just looked like an afro. It looked like a big-ass green afro. Like a whopped, what we call, you should call it like a whopped afro. What's a whopped afro? Like a a afro, you know, afro is supposed to be round, you know? (laughs) When when we used to have froze, like our froze sometimes wouldn't be like round. They'd be like off to the side if you fell asleep or... It just, it just wasn't, I mean, to me, that's the first thing I thought. I was like, oh, that should look like an afro in the middle, but it's not shaped right. (laughs) Okay, so Lauren uh, initially thought, oh, I'll just fly the magnolia flag. Problem is, it was commissioned and designed for the newly seceded Republic of Mississippi in 1861. There you go. Okay. And I was like, uh uh-uh. At a certain point, Lauren just thought, well, I'm an artist. Let me see what I can come up with. I I started to kind of doodle. I started to, because I knew flags that I love. Like Tennessee has a great flag. Colorado, New Mexico. You know, I knew good flags when I saw them and I thought, what is it? That question led her to the wonderful world of vexillology. It took me forever to be able to say it, but it's the study of flags. There's a whole field of study about flags? It is a pri- primarily a bunch of old white guys. This is a flag. <laughs> um, that'll mansplain And this is a flag. To <laughs> death. And this is a flag. Um, and this is a flag. They were so excited when I joined the North American Vexillological Association. Um, I was certainly, I think... <laughs> The youngest member and one of, yeah, and one of their only female members. And this is a flag. She ultimately got to work uh, coming up with a design that looks a little like a deconstructed, remixed American flag. You've got three vertical stripes, red, white, red. And the red color really symbolizes the blood spilled by Mississippians who have given their lives for liberty and justice. In the middle of the flag, you have a circle of stars. When I was looking at indigenous art among tribes that were native to Mississippi even before statehood, I would see a circular or a spiral element in some of the work. The circle, she says, was a nod to them, also to the endless cycles of history. You know, uh, no beginning, no end. There are precisely 19 stars in the circle for the 19 states that joined the Union before Mississippi. And inside the circle... The star in the middle is the 20th, and it's the biggest and the best, and that's us. Lauren took that mock-up and sent it to a guy... Recording starting now. ...named Ted Kay. I'm the secretary of the North American Vexillological Association. He's famous in the flag world. He's a god. Ted literally wrote the book Good Flag, Bad Flag, where he outlines the five principles of good flag design. Simplicity, meaningful symbolism, few colors, no lettering or seals, and distinctiveness. So I emailed him just and said, you don't know me from Adam's house cap, but here's what I have, and I would love your feedback. And he was so kind and so generous. He wrote back and he said, I love your design. 
all I would do is make the stars bigger. Bigger. As big as you can get them. You know, but you've got a top 10 flag design, top 10 United States flag design here. It's great. It may well be showing Mississippians that a different flag could represent the state. And good luck with that. But I've had informal conversations with at least five different people who are working on proposed flags in Mississippi. Like, like, like recently? In the last couple of years, yes. Having a good design, says Ted, is just the beginning. And there's a lot more to flags than what's on them. In our conversation, he walked us through the long history of flags. And I got to say, it sort of put the whole Mississippi flag fight in a new context. Flags started out as uh, markers on the battlefield. And this is true all the way up through the Civil War. It's very important to know where your troops are on the battlefield, and they are marked by flags. Imagine, he says, two armies face off. It's a melee. The sides get confused, and you need to regroup. You look for the flag, and you run to the flag. So it's important to have someone carry that flag. And one of the problems when you're carrying a flag is you can't shoot back. You are defenseless. And everybody wants to shoot at you because if you can knock down the enemy's flag, you reduce their ability to know where their troops are. So the culture of the military was to imbue great honor in being the flag bearer because that's what you needed to do to get someone to sacrifice. There are stories of battles in the Civil War where there would be one charge across the battlefield. One would be shot, the next guy would pick it up. He'd be shot, the next guy would pick it up. He'd be shot. Six people would die carrying that flag. So it's very important in military propaganda, I would say, to have people feel strongly about the flag. Oh, that's so interesting. Like, in some sense, the way in which we revere and honor and sing to and then fight over the flag is a direct spiritual line back to the battlefield. It, it could well be. Add to that, he says, in America, we don't have a king or queen. We put all of that deference up on our flag. And you feel the emotional weight of that when you look back to 2001. Governor Tuck, Mr. Speaker, members of the Mississippi legislature, Chief Justice Pittman. After years of people submitting bills to change the flag that went absolutely nowhere, in 88, 90, 92, 93, the governor at the time, Ronnie Musgrove, I implore you to hear our people again. Urge the legislature to give the decision to the people. I urge you to put this issue on the ballot. In a referendum. And leading up to that vote, there were a series of town halls across Mississippi. Tonight's first Friday flag special features a representative sampling of the views expressed by Mississippians at the five public hearings dealing with the future of Mississippi's flag. You can watch these town halls online. They took place in auditoriums, church basements, and they are, well, they're battles. Where does it stop? So we are tired of this onslaught against the Confederate heritage. It needs to stop, and it needs to stop right now. Our state flag represents grit, guts, and cojones. Our state flag, our state flag represents pride. If you white people don't get it, 
This is the year 2000. We will not go back. We will not go back. That flag must be changed. I've lived all over the country. We are the laughing stock of America. That flag represents Mississippi being 50 in education, 50 in per capita income, number one in infant mortality, number one in lynching. We cannot afford to keep that flag. We must move forward. This flag is just like my wife. You mess with my wife, go get your ass kicked. That's all there is to it. Our state flag, you listen to you listen over there, clear liar. Our state flag represents blood, sweat, and tears of countless southerners who were a far sight better than any of y'all. Now listen, uh, Mr. Winner. Mr. Winner was the head of the flag commission, former governor. He was in the room. You are despicable. You are an anathema. You're an anathema to what is honorable in this state. You have, hey, 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 don't go, hey, hey, hey. Get, no, 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 it's my time, my time, no, no, my time. You, hey, 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 listen, listen. Hey, you have been nothing but a parasite your entire career. You're a sorry lawyer, you're gutless. You are worthy of being tarred and feathered and run out of this state. It goes on and on like this. One of the craziest moments in a sea of crazy is when a 17-year-old white girl with bright orange hair steps up to the mic. I am a young girl working in a grocery store environment. I do work with blacks, and I have several, not just one or two, but several friends who are black. One person said, where would the slaves in America be today if it weren't for slavery? They'd probably still be in Africa enslaved or other European nations. Another person asked me to point out most, not all, of the African-American race living in America today got their last name from their masters. Are you prepared to give up your name? I don't think you are, because if you get my flag, I will get your name. So that was 2001. And before we get back to Lauren, as you watch these videos, one thing that you can't help but ask yourself is, where do some of these people get these ideas from? Right, but but I will say that... This is a question that Ashton Pittman, the reporter we spoke to earlier, asked himself. And he started to actually track down some of the people in the video, including Orange Haired Girl, who, by the way, is a radiologist today and was valedictorian in her high school class. And what he discovered is that most of them went to what's called segregation academies. Yes, almost all of them were set up in either 1969, 1970, or 1971. I mean, this Supreme Court ruling... The school desegregation ordered in Mississippi began today. ...to desegregate the public schools came in December 1969. Reaction to the ruling was predictable, angry, and swift. By the start of the school year... The whites are abandoning the public schools. January 1970... Private schools are appearing in great numbers. You had white kids 
not returning to their public schools and going to makeshift schools that were set up in white churches. White volunteers are converting a tent factory into classroom. Or in makeshift building. Many of these schools represent a last resort for white parents determined to resist federal desegregation orders. Like that's the origin of a ton of these academies. I think at one point there were like... And one estimate is they number in the thousands. Wow. Yeah, they, they went up overnight. So if you make sure your kids only go to white schools with other white kids, you don't have to worry about, you know, maybe your kids developing some empathy for their black classmates, having a greater understanding of viewpoints that are outside of that kind of white supremacist mindset. And in 2001, and still today, honestly, a lot of these private academies that, that popped up in 1970, 71, even in 2001, a lot of them were still either all white or, you know, 99, 98% white. And that's still true today. In fact, Ashton told us that he and his husband, William, found that over a third of the current Mississippi senators today attended segregation academies. In any case, in that 2001 referendum, 64 percent chose the 1894 flag over the alternative. Mississippi voted to keep the state flag, Confederate battle flag and all. And people were like, well, 65 percent of the people in Mississippi voted to keep the flag. No. 65% of the people who showed up that day, but only 23% of our population showed up to vote that day. Suffice to say, the vote went along racial lines, but the mostly white pro-flag contingent unsurprisingly had better turnout. At that point, I will admit, I got, it was a little daunting. As Lauren was doodling new flag designs, rooting around in the archives and reading all the letters people sent during that 2001 referendum, she started to wonder, how do you prevent that from happening again? I mean, obviously part of it is entrenched and systemic, Part of it, it occurred to her, was just a pattern that she had seen in her social work, where one person saying stop only causes the person they're saying it to to dig in harder. This is kind of where the psychology part comes in. I began to realize that many of the other previous efforts took the angle of trying to shame some Mississippians. Mm -hmm. Psychologically, if you're saying, that's the hashtag that a lot of people were using. Take it down, take it down, take it down. Now, psychologically, if you're saying I'm going to take something from you, even if you're not that attached to it, (laughs) you might start to squeeze it a little bit. This flag is just like my wife. And be like, no, wait a minute. You mess with my wife, you'll get your ass kicked. The psychology of loss is really strong. But if I'm offering you something and I'm doing something positive and I'm not threatening you, it it just makes sense. And so my, my, my hashtag has been put it up. Okay, so 2015, after Lauren had designed her flag, workshopped it a bit with Ted Kay, she puts the design on Facebook. I didn't have any plan at that point. She said it was just for her friends to see. But then a few things happen. There's the mass shooting at the Black Church in South Carolina. Old Miss then votes to take down the state flag on their campus. And in the wake of that, Lauren gets a message from a state senator saying, By the way, I just introduced a bill to change the state flag to your flag. And I typed, what? Oh, wow. (laughs) She had not reached out to me. She had just seen what I was doing on Facebook and was like, I'm going to go for it. So that really got the ball rolling. That particular bill didn't go anywhere. Once again, all flag bills died in committee. But. Oh, game on. So I. She went ahead and manufactured a bunch of her flags anyway, took them to a local flag store in Jackson, Mississippi. Y'all keep the money. I just I just ask if you will please make it affordable. Because this was a moment when business after business was following old Mrs. Lead and taking that state flag down, which left. A lot of empty flagpoles for her flag to go up. And within a year, her flag, which she called the Mississippi Hospitality Flag, 
but everybody else called this tennis flag. It was the number one selling flag in the state, which is... Oh, wow. She was beginning to outsell the 1894 state flag many times over. I mean, that, that, that flag store is making bank. And more and more it's caught on. You see it flying more places. But last, not this current session that got called because of the pandemic, but the session before that, I was approached by a Republican lawmaker who said, have you thought about doing a specialty license plate? Her and uh, this Republican lawmaker cook up a plan that when people order these vanity plates, these are license plates where you have special messages on them, those plates would arrive with her flag on the license plate rather than the actual state flag. He said, let's just not draw any attention to it because it turns out that the way they pass the specialty tags, they group them all together in one bill and just kind of pass them at the end of the session. And so people may or may not read it very carefully. (laughs) So I had to sit on it. I didn't say a word. And it passed. We've already raised close to um, $40,000 for the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum and the Museum of Mississippi History because I chose them as the recipient for the proceeds. It's like you guys are leading a quiet revolution. Well, I would never use the term like revolution or whatever because that's threatening. Yeah, I am. I am way behind the scenes and I'm really quiet versus, you know, it, like when people go change the flag rally, I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, oh, shit. Like, the whole the whole time that's been Lauren's approach. Keep it stealth. No referendums, no public debates. Just get it out there on cars and banks and fraternities and bars so that people start seeing it. Oh, yeah. My neighbor has that. Oh, yeah. I saw that at, at uh, Steve's Diner downtown. You know, it's like that's how it happens. It becomes inevitable. It's like we're we're almost there. We're almost there. I mean, you know, my thing with Lauren is like I just think she knows white people uh, in a, in a way that I don't. <laughs> I mean, I think white people have talked to her and said things to her that they've never said to me. In one of my phone calls with Kiese Lehman, Lauren's friend, writer, I asked him what he thinks about the stealth approach. I'm not gonna say that that's wrong. I just think the interesting thing about Lauren, and and this is to her credit, I guess, is that. All of her moves seem to be predicated on, like, the POV of white folks, right? Like, like, mm. like th- this is what they'll do. This is what they'll feel. This is what this, this is. And, and I feel that. But, but, there's a, but, there's a, but there's a large population of the state that is not those people. You know what I'm saying? So I'm not trying to, to disagree with Lauren. She's talking pragmatically. You know what I'm saying? I get it. I feel it. I just can't always be thinking about what, what the racist white people are going to do. The civil rights movement is over. We started talking about those 2001 town hall videos. It ended when you started trying to put me down. How, if you watch the whole thing, there's a pattern that emerges. You see a lot of black people dressed in their Sunday best. Excuse me. Let me finish talking, please, sir. Thank you. And making a deliberate point to speak respectfully and calmly. God, I hope God put on my heart to say something that might change somebody's mind. Whereas you see a lot of the white people. Our state flag, you listen to it. You listen over there. Claire liar. Just yelling. All of those reasons. That is why I, I'm, I'm, I literally had to leave because like it's humiliating when you always approach these people with that sort of kindness in the face of them telling you that you better fucking shut the fuck up and watch us commemorate your suffering. And we're like, um, I heard what the gentleman said uh, a few minutes ago (laughs) (laughs) about me not being worth a damn. Um, I would just like to, you know what I mean? Like, that's not, that's not, that don't feel natural to me. 
One of the things that Kiese is famous for in Mississippi, in addition to his writing, is for getting into a major dust-up at Millsaps with a bunch of white fraternity boys who dressed up in blackface and Afro wigs and called his girlfriend the N-word. I'm sure you, you seen Fanny when you talked about what happened to her in, um, in 1963 in the jail, right? Did you ever see that? Fanny Lou Hamer, is that what you said? Yeah, Fanny Lou Hamer's speech where she's talking about I was carried to the county jail and put in the booking room. Getting arrested in 1963 and how she was in the jail and she, she, you know, she heard this other woman down the hall getting beaten. They beat her I don't know how long. It wasn't too long before three white men came to my cell. The guards came in and they made black men beat her damn near to death. I laid on my face, the first Negro began to beat. Fucked up her eye, fucked up her kidneys. And I was beat by the first Negro until he was exhausted. I mean, I can't listen to it without crying. Like, she is talking about white men putting her in prison, making black incarcerated men beat the fuck out of her to damn near dead. All of this is on account of we want to register. Just because she wanted to fucking write the vote. But, 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 but the wonder to me is that she could comport herself to tell that story. Is this America? You know what I mean? Like, she was so... The land of the free and the home of the brave. ...prepared, even though she's, like, reaching into, like, this well of fucking, like, horror that she should have never had to experience. It is ancestral. Like, people in the face of terror and ultimate fucking humiliation have to comport themselves in particular ways that white folks just never, ever have to do. And that shit is just foul. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's why... At the end of the day, I'm just like, fuck. Yeah, so anyway. Okay, so up until about a month and a half ago, here's where we were at. You had Lauren quietly campaigning, Kiese wondering if quiet was the way to go. And you had Tate Reeves, the governor of Mississippi, a guy they both went to school with and who was actually in that fraternity where the kids wore blackface. The photos show members of the fraternity in blackface, some holding up a Confederate flag. You had him, this is at the beginning of the pandemic, declaring April Confederate History Month. Meanwhile, in the legislature, conservative Republicans held, still hold, a supermajority, all of which is to say that the prospects a month and a half ago of anything happening quickly or at all with the state flag were very, very low. But then everything changes. That's after the break. Hi, this is Nele from Hamburg, Germany. Radiolab is supported, in part, by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Radiolab is supported by Babbel. Sometimes self-improvement can feel like a pretty overwhelming journey. So what if this year you just got a tiny bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with quick 10-minute lessons that have been handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. You can learn everything you need to have real-world conversations, café s'il vous plaît, from vocabulary words to culture and more. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a few months or a full year. 
Here is a special limited time deal for Radiolab listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash Radiolab. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash Radiolab, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Radiolab. Rules and restrictions may apply. Radiolab is supported by Zbiotics. If you've been looking for some help waking up refreshed after a fun night out, Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is a genetically engineered probiotic invented by scientists to help tackle rough mornings after drinking. This probiotic is the first drink of the night for a better tomorrow, as it works to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com slash Radiolab to get 15% off your first order when you use Radiolab at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com slash Radiolab and use the code Radiolab at checkout for 15% off. For so many Black people, the whiz feels like home. <laughs> The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing, and as it gears up for a national tour, we'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to The Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Radio Lab. I'm Jad Abumrad here with Shima Oliyai. Hey. And uh, we're in the middle of a deep dive into the story behind the removal of the Confederate battle flag clad Mississippi state flag. Now, as we talked about just a month and a half ago, you had a situation where despite Lawrence Dennis's best efforts to sneak a new flag into the conversation, despite people like John Hawkins taking a stand against the flag, you had a situation where there was a Republican supermajority in the Senate, a governor who had just declared Confederate Heritage Month. It seemed like if things were going to change, it was going to happen really slowly, and we'd probably be talking about this for another 126 years. That is until May 25th, 2020. This is ridiculous! Get off of him! Cities from coast to coast have seen protests of outrage and anger over George Floyd's death. In Mississippi, like everywhere, people hit the streets. And the chance of Black Lives Matter morphed seamlessly into Take it down! Take it down! Take it down. Protesters here in Jackson rallied in front of the governor's mansion. Peace is not the Confederate emblem flying in my state. That's Along with calls for an end to police brutality were citizens calling for changes to our state symbol. Governor Tate Reeves says, The people of Mississippi made a decision in 2001, an overwhelming decision to maintain the flag. He's not planning to take any individual action to take it down. Cut to the Mississippi State House of Representatives. Rep. Chris Bell. I represent House District 65 in Jackson. Was between sessions. A Republican legislator and I actually passed each other in the hallway on my way to grab some coffee. And she made the statement, you know, look, if you guys are working on trying to get this flag removed, I will be able to help out behind the scenes. And I said, hey, great. And we started the ball rolling. It's time for us to do something now. Soon, Chris and seven other legislators, including Shonda Yates, Representative District 64, meet in a back room 
to work up a bill. We are at a point in the legislature, though, where the deadline to introduce general bills was was months ago. The timing of this was such that in just a few weeks, the entire state capitol was all about to go on break for the year. So for this to happen now, we would have to suspend the rules, which requires a two-thirds vote. Two-thirds of the House of Representatives and two-thirds of the senators have to vote to allow the rules to be suspended. Mathematically, crazy odds. But I was vocal about it that, yeah, I think we are finally starting to see a shift to, to get this changed. So the group sets out to whip some votes. But before they're able to gather even a little bit of momentum... Their plans leak and an article hits the press. Saying that, hey, representatives are meeting about this and they're going to try to change the flag. Oh, so the initial media leak was probably untimely. Immediately, there was pushback. Those representatives that live in rural areas started hearing from their constituents. Hello. Hi, Representative Morgan. Yes. This is Representative Ken Morgan, Republican. He represents a rural area in southern Mississippi. Your constituents, what is their voice? About 74% to leave it like it is. Mm. I just stopped at a convenience store on my way home, and four people in there told me these very words, don't let them change our flag. Wow. Dang. This is Chris. Hi, Chris. This is Shima. Hey, how are you? I also spoke with Senator Chris McDaniel. He's been one of the most outspoken critics of changing the flag. You know, it's funny. It's not really about a flag to me. It's about a philosophical position. We're talking about monuments, flags, which of course translates into history. And we have one side of this debate, the left, who have become increasingly intolerant of diverse viewpoints, increasingly intolerant of other people's opinions. From my perspective, the price we pay to live in a free society is to occasionally be offended. Diversity of viewpoints matter. Speech matters. Expression matters. Their side of the equation doesn't share that opinion any longer. They want uniformity. They want doctrinal truth. And they are just as guilty of being so blind to diversity that they basically quell it at every turn. I see this as a fight philosophically for the future of the country. It's not simply about a flag. It's a position, a mental position. And that's why I think a referendum process would be so important. When you have a referendum, the people are forced into a discussion of the issues. There he expressed the default Republican position. If you want to change the flag, send it to a vote. That's what we did in 2001, and that's what we should do now. Does that mean in the Constitution Committee you think that the bill will be, like, just killed there? Oh, yeah, it's already dead. Oh, really? It's already, I, think it's, I think the bill's already dead. Turns out, just a few days after the bill was introduced, what happened behind the scenes? Hello? And I learned this from another representative. Robert L. Johnson III, representative of District 94. Is that the Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman, a conservative, did the thing that always happens, the thing that's been happening in one form or another for 120 years. He diverted the baby flag bill to a hostile committee. You sent it to a committee that's loaded with uh, ultra-conservative Republicans. I mean, at the end of the day, the flag passing or not passing is going to turn on whether or not Republicans finally wake up and decide this is something we need to do. Can you just hold on a second? I'm picking my mother up. And just like that, poof. 
there was one day last week where I was like, holy shit, this is going to happen. And then the very next day, I was like, fuck, it's over. Lauren and I spoke on the phone that day. She was unusually bitter. But I think it's going to be kind of a hell of a pay situation because my people here have been so fucking horrible for so fucking long. We talked for a while as protests raged outside of my window in Brooklyn and hers in Jackson, Mississippi. I told her about something I'd heard in one of my interviews that maybe the only way that the flag will ever come down in Mississippi is if what happened in South Carolina. Top lawmakers there now joining the chorus, calling for it to be removed after last week's shootings at that historic black church. Happens there. I'm horrified at the thought that there's got to be a murder for this. We've had so many. And, you know, it's just like, I mean, I don't want somebody to have, I mean, this is crazy that we're having this discussion. No, no. Eight days before the end of the legislative session, that's where things stood. Nothing was happening, and nothing was going to happen. Basically, what people want to do is run out the clock. But then... June 18th. We begin with breaking news. Breaking news. The SEC is considering withholding title games tonight amid the ongoing flag fight in the state. Enter the mighty voice of college sports. The SEC, Southeastern Conference, has made it clear, unless Mississippi takes the Confederate flag off its state flag, there will be no... SEC championships taking place on any campus in Mississippi. That is essentially a divestment practice. Suddenly, the flag debate was on a whole new level. I keep telling people, if you want to affect America, you must deal with money. One day later... The NCAA announced it is expanding its Confederate flag policy. The big dog steps in. Banning all championship events from being held in states where the Confederate flag is flown. Mississippi is the only state affected. From there, a cascade of businesses threatened to divest in rapid succession. First, it was Sanderson Farms, 15,000 employees. Then Walmart says it will no longer have Mississippi's state flag in its stores. Walmart, 23,000 employees. Same day, the Mississippi Baptist Convention said something similar. They Mississippi Baptist Convention, more than half a million members. In light of our understanding of his teaching, Jesus Christ, I am compelled to urge the legislature to change our state flag. That's you? I hop on the phone with Lauren to review this new progress. There's a statement that I can forge you that our lieutenant governor just released. Here's the thing. I talked to uh, a senator today who said um, they're 10 votes away. Oh, God. She showed me tweets of her flag waving at BLM protests. And then we talked about all the businesses that have just put up her flag in the past few days. Whitney Bank, but, which is a big presence on the coast, is putting up a tennis banner as soon as it gets back from the printer. And this huge, gothic, fabulous, I think it's the tallest building downtown, the Lamar Life Building in Jackson. They need a 10 by 15 flag, so we had to order it. Outside of the NBC headquarters, there's a flag of yours. <gasps> you raising, must, yeah. Did you see you that? Will you take a picture of that? No. Two days to the deadline. You had a couple of legislators who have come out on the right side of history. Very pleasure right now. Chris Bell and Shonda Yates tell me that they've inched forward just a little bit. We're hoping that the momentum will grow over the weekend. Hey, this is Chris. I'm sorry I couldn't answer the phone. Also tried Senator Chris McDaniel a few times. Leave a message and I'll get right back to you. The mailbox is full. Goodbye. 
momentum is building to change Mississippi's state flag, even as the legislative session winds down. The House Democratic minority leaders say they are about one to two votes away from getting some movement going. Around this time, with team change still a few votes short and just a few days left to the deadline. Republicans brought out the two-flag option. There's been an idea floated about adopting a second co-equal flag. Keep our current flag and also have a new flag. Kind of separate but equal flags. That's not even up. That's not up for debate. It's a weird idea for me to wrap my head around. On the eve of the deadline, seemed like things had suddenly stalled. Suddenly, all the senators weren't returning my calls. Meanwhile, Lauren was getting attacked online. A few members of the Mississippi Black Lives Matter movement started publicly saying that the new flag should be designed by a Black person and should not bear the name of a segregationist. Well, I... I met with some folks who are um, with Black Lives Matter, and it was really helpful to realize in person, in dialogue, how much of a roadblock the association or even just the perceived association with my grandfather was. I mean, you have to kind of Mm. realize how hard this is to happen in Mississippi, and it's kind of absurd and crazy, but all the planets were aligning, and then all of a sudden— it became, my last name became this huge issue. And I'm like, well, I'm getting the hell out of the way because this needs to happen. She ended up posting a statement online. Can you read it to me? Yes. Dear friends, Mississippi will soon know all the benefits and joy that come with having a state flag that is evocative, not provocative. Working hard for six years toward that goal has been one of the best experiences of my life. In a continued effort to be of service, I'll be stepping away from this endeavor as I understand the hurt and potential harm my last name can cause. But I will always continue to fight for Mississippi and her people, which I consider both a duty and a joy. Mississippi needs and deserves a new flag. Help make it so. Lauren. That's kind of, that's heartbreaking. No, it's, it's, it's good. It's all right. Breaking this morning, Lauren Stennis, the creator of a popular alternative to the state flag, says she's stepping away from her endeavor. Her grandfather was U.S. Senator John Stennis, who served Mississippi on Capitol Hill for 41 years. come to order. Please stand as related in prayer today by a guest minister to be introduced by the lady from Harrison and remain standing thereafter for the pledge. Saturday, June 27th, 2020. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Thank you, ladies and State gentlemen. legislators finally oh, meet to vote to on the flag. John Davis, Jr. Minutes before, I get a series of frantic texts from Shonda Yates. Shima, it's now. Looks like it's not happening. It's on. Honestly, I have no idea. Thank you, Father, for Mississippi. Session begins with a prayer. We ask you and beseech you that you would be in their hearts, that what is in their heart will transfer to their mind, that they may do the things that are pleasing unto God for the good of all Mississippians and even our country. Forgive us of our sins. We pray, amen. Then, pledge, please. Appropriately enough. Everybody faces a big American flag next to it, the 1894 Mississippi state flag, the Confederate one, and they pledge their allegiance. Maybe for the last time. 
Maybe not. Open the machine, Madam Clerk. In the audience, you can see a few black representatives are wearing masks. One has the words, take it down, written on his, and another has the number 846 printed on his. Ask him back to order. After that, speeches. Arise before you today in this chamber, the eyes of our state, the nation, and indeed the world are on this house this morning. The tenor of the speeches reminded me of reading John and Abigail Adams's letters, how they would write in this way where they knew that we would be reading their letters hundreds of years later. History will be made here today. I will know exactly where I was on this day. There was that same awareness here. I woke up this morning like many of you and I watched the news and on each channel they were talking about the vote on Mississippi's flag. That's on national news. And the international news is there too. It is so because of what that flag stands for. Yet a few minutes of debate, we want to take the joy away from them. Where you heard the arguments. We as a body want to take that from them. I appreciate your position. That is not the position of this body here today. At times, during these debates. And, and I understand that. Good. My, my Things got a little testy. And I'm not trying to be argumentative with you. Me you're, either. You're, I, me yes, either. You are. Me either. I remember watching. Senator Chris McDaniel. The American flag being burned. That really bothered me. I didn't understand why someone would do something like that. The symbol seemed so pure, so innocent. And so I asked my father, I said, why are they burning this flag? And he says, well, son, it's complicated. His closing shot was a story about his dad, how his dad taught him that flags, just like the people they represent, are complicated. And we should embrace that, not erase it. This is a tough decision. It's a very tough decision. I know it's tough. It's hard. But this is why you're elected to be in these positions. After that? So now, uh, Senator, we have a motion. Use of the morning roll call. The moment of truth. Uh, motion by use of the morning roll call. Does anyone object to the procedure? Now, uh, to be honest, there are actually two votes, one in the House and the Senate. We're going to focus in on the Senate. That's what you're hearing because that's the vote that really counts. Roll call. Is that what your motion is? If you recall, they needed a two-thirds majority to suspend the rules in order to move forward. If they get that majority, it's effectively a vote to change the flag, which means they need 35 out of 52 votes. Mr. Clerk. Barnett, Blackman, Blackwell, Blunt, Boyd, Branning, Bryan, Butler, Carter. The clerk calls the 50 senators one by one. They do a voice vote. Simmons of the 12th, Simmons of the 13th, Sojourner, Sparks. Then he reads the tally. First the yeas. Voting yes or yay. Barnett, Blackman, Blackwell, Blunt, Boyd, Bryan, Butler, Carter, DeBar, Delano, Doty, England, Frazier, Harkins, Hobson, Horn, Jackson of the 15th, Jackson of the 11th, Jackson of the 32nd. Then the nays. Voting no or nay, Branning, Kaufman, Chazanol, Chisholm, Fillingame, Hill, Johnson, McCon, McDaniel, McLendon, Seymour, Sojourner, Sparks, Suber, and Whaley. Then there is a two-minute silence where seems like there are some recounts. Again, they need to get to 35 out of 52 votes. Watching this on the stream at this point, I'm thinking if there are these recounts, that probably means they don't have it. By a vote of 36 to 14, the motion passes. 
Mr. President, I ask for immediate release. Seeing no objection, immediate release is granted. For 126 years, the Mississippi state flag had the Confederate flag on it. But no longer. Just yes. watched it. Yes. Shonda Yates. The old flag is gone. All the hard work is paid off. Robert Johnson. The people get to see Mississippi for who they really are. It was a victory for all of us. Chris Bell. Mississippi is ready to enter the global market. Hell, what can you say? I voted not to change something. <laughs> Ken Morgan. That's all I yeah. can do. Oh. Oh my gosh. Did you watch? I did. I saw it. And John Hawkins, where it all began. You know, I was watching it with my son, my 18-year-old son, who's uh, headed to the University of Kentucky in the fall. But I'm not sure he fully understood the gravity of the moment. And John has hinted to us that he might now finally move back to Mississippi. And perhaps politics will be in his future. Now, as for how they got the vote, because remember, they came into the day a few votes shy. Turns out the thing that pushed them over the edge was quite literally God. At the very last minute, a few Republicans agreed to vote to remove the old flag only if the new flag had the words, in God we trust, on it. Do you know where that came from? Well, or, the, the, well we um, still live in a yeah. conservative state, and part of, part of what uh, it took to get uh, people to cross that line of, of voting to take the Confederate flag down is to give them some alternative that they could go sell to the traditionalists out there, and they want that on their flag. Seeing the way it all played out, was that bittersweet from your perspective? I, I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. But um, you know, wow, we got we got the current flag down, the eighteen ninety four flag down, and yeah. uh, so have been celebrating that for sure. A few days later, Governor Tate Reeves, he of the blackface battle flag loving fraternity. Signed the bill into law. It is an, an amazing historical moment to be witnessing this. The last time the Mississippi state flag raised at the Mississippi state capitol, now lowered, never to be raised again. And then all 1894 flags were officially removed from all state buildings. But, um, you know, <laughs> in true fashion, we've made the replacement the most complicated procedure yeah. ever. Of course, the process. Now, as they do this, they now name soon the nine-member commission who will be in tasked with the process of finding a flag design. For the moment, Mississippi, which used to be the only state in the Union with the Confederate battle flag on it, is now the only state in the Union without a flag at all. And I just think it's amazing that, that Mississippians did something radical. It's radical to be a state without a flag. You know what I'm saying? Like that, that's, that's, that is, that, that, that's not like, it's radical to be like, you know what? We don't have a fucking flag right now. So we're going to have to build some shit together. This is the beginning. <laughs> this ain't the end. But right now, I'm not going to think about that. Right now, I'm just going to be happy. I'm going to be real happy for this weekend. That's something I never thought would see happen. Something my granny never thought would see happen, you know? So it's not the end, but it's a victory. And I think going forward, like my utopia would be like the the, the Lauren and a lot of other brilliant, thoughtful, loving people were central 
to the design of the new flag. Like, you know, how do we share and do right by the best of Mississippi, the best of Mississippi? Two quick postscripts from what we understand, orders of the Confederate flag have apparently shot through the roof in Mississippi, and second, just this week in the wake of the flag proceedings, we learned that 26 legislatures have tested positive for COVID. This episode was brought to you through a collaboration between Awesome Audio and Radiolab. It was produced and reported by Shim Oliai, with production assistance from Annie McEwen and Bethel Hopte. Thanks also to Kiesa Lemon, author of Heavy, a great memoir, definitely recommend. To Tad Davis, Ray Hawkins, Rory Doyle, Katie McKee, Adam Ganeshow, Kaylee Skinner, Giacomo Bologna, Luke Ramseth, and Sarah Fowler. I'm Jad Abumrad. Thanks for listening. This is Eddie Coyne from Hobart, Australia. Radiolab is created by Jad Abumrad with Robert Quowich and produced by Soren Wheeler. Dylan Keefe is our Director of Sound Design. Susie Lechtenberg is our Executive Producer. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Becca Bresler, Rachel Kuzik, David Giebel, Bethel Habti, Tracy Hunt, Matt Keelty, Annie McEwen, Latif Nasser, Sarah Kari, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Shima O'Leary, W. Harry Fortuna, Sarah Sandback, Melissa O'Donnell, Tad Davis, and Russell Gregg. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris. Radio Lab is supported by Cozy Earth. When you think about summer comfort, words like breezy or soft maybe come to mind. With Cozy Earth's luxurious bedding and loungewear, you'll get the comfort of home wherever you roam, allowing you to elevate your summer getaway no matter where or even if you're getting away. Cozy Earth bedding is temperature regulating and made from top-notch materials, including viscose from bamboo that can turn any living or sleeping space into a sanctuary of luxury and comfort. Their loungewear and pajamas offer you their signature level of comfort while maintaining an elegant fit so you can look cute and be comfy even if you're taking a long flight or car trip. Cozy Earth provided an exclusive offer for Radiolab listeners. Get 35% off site-wide when you use the code Radiolab at www.cozyearth.com. That's 35% off at CozyEarth.com, code Radiolab. Discover your next destination for ultimate comfort at Cozy Earth. Cozy Earth.